right. Uh, take out the notes that you've been given today. Um, I did note, or I did um, observe, uh, just as I opened up my laptop and looked at the notes, I uh, failed to update the version of the verses in there, so they're, they're all King James, so I'll have to plug through some, uh, some these and thous this evening. But um, the, the title of the lesson, which I am not intending to get all the way through tonight, because there's a lot to deal with and some of it is very heavy, is called Theology and Apologetics. All right, so last week we did a basic introduction to, or to apologetics. What are we doing in apologetics? What's the whole point? We said we're rationally defending Christianity. Uh, and we, we introduced, uh, just a little bit of review, we introduced uh, the two basic ways of going about doing apologetics. All right, you had on, on the one hand, the evidential uh, approach to doing apologetics, which the idea is, I'm going to go to the unbeliever and I'm going to establish common ground. I'm going to say, you know, Mr. Unbeliever, you believe this, I believe this. You know, let's just look at the evidence impartially. If we looked at the evidence impartially, we would come to the conclusion that God exists and that Christianity is true. Uh, the presuppositionalist uh, approach to apologetics, on the other hand, says that, that the, the first way of doing apologetics, the evidentialist approach to doing apologetics, is a bit philosophically naive in that what counts as evidence is determined already by a certain set of presuppositions that you have. Um, you know, if we were to, if we were to give a uh, parallel example of this, um, <coughs> you know, when, you, when your child comes to you and says, Daddy, there is a monster under the bed. Okay? Um, and, and, and then the child begins to show you the evidence that there was a monster under the bed. What, how much of that counts as legitimate evidence toward the existence of monsters for you? How much of that evidence counts? None. Why? Because there aren't any monsters, right? You come to the situation with a presupposition already in place, and that affects how you, how you read the evidence. What even counts as evidence for something that could or could not be true? Uh, the same thing is true when we present Christianity. All right? we'll, we'll talk about what that's going to mean. But I say here at the beginning, our apologetics must not be independent of our theology. That is, we cannot up or operate under the mistaken notion that because apologetics se seeks to prove the truth of our theology, we cannot utilize our theology to, to define the nature of apologetics. Let me translate that into English. Um, sometimes I write things that look like English, but they're really not. <coughs> Some would say this. Um, if you're doing apologetics, you can't come into the discussion presupposing already that Christianity is true. That's what's called begging the question, or you, you may have heard the expression, a circular argument, right? And that sounds really circular, right? For me to come to the unbeliever already assuming that Christianity is true, and then I'm going to prove to him that Christianity is true, well, that doesn't seem like that's very hard for me, does it? Um, I think it is important for us, however, to have our apologetics informed by our theology. And, and, and let me illustrate this very quickly. I'm going to so one of the things as apologists 
that I need to do. I've got to prove the existence of God. Well, if I'm going to prove the existence of God, what is the first thing I have to know in order to prove the existence of God? Well, someone said it. That there's a God. That there's a God. But I need to know even something more than that if I'm going to prove that God exists. That it can be proven. Okay. That, that is also true. That is also true. Um, that also helps. It's hard to do apologetics with non-existent people. Um, <laughs> how many candidates have there been throughout human history for the title God? Thousands, right? What's that? Candidates, candidates to be God. Thousands and thousands. If I'm going to prove the existence of God, what do I have to know first? Who's God? Right? Because... The, the sort of gods that have existed throughout human history that, or, or that people have claimed to exist throughout human history are very different, right? You think of, for instance, the, the, the Greek pantheon of gods, you know, Zeus and, and, and Apollo and all these guys. Um, if, if you study Greek mythology and the Greek gods, are those gods infinite? No, really, what are they? They're, they're, they're almost like supermen, right? They're, they're finite beings but raised to a really enormous level. Well, the sort of thing that would prove the existence of a Greek god is not the same sort of thing that would prove the existence of the Christian god. Does that make sense? So, if we're going to do the work of apologetics, I have to know something about the theology that I'm going to try to defend, which is why Van Til has argued, and I mentioned Cornelius Van Til last week, is kind of the, the founder, the original thinker of presuppositional apologetics. Van Til has argued that the best theologian will be the best apologist. And I think that's true, and it, it's something we ought to consider, that as we go to unbelievers and, and seek to share the gospel with them, when they have questions about the faith, um, part of being ready to give an answer isn't just studying creation science and studying Islam and studying the latest attack on Christianity. Really what we need more than anything else is to know our theology, to know what Christian theology believes, um, because that's going to set the guidelines for what it means to defend Christianity. Right? So... Um, I say here, hopefully this principle will become even more obvious once we consider the nature of the theology we wish to defend. Honestly, uh, the notes for this section are, are organized somewhat. They could probably uh, stand to be organized a little bit better. But it, it, what I've hit are a number of significant theological points that impact what we're doing when we do apologetics. So the first question that we have is, who's God? Um, and, and here's our big point. I've got it there at number one. God as absolutely ultimate. Okay. Um, well, let's, let's prove it and then we'll talk about the significance. Biblical testimony of God's ultimacy. And what we're going to see in these verses, we're just going to read them one after another, is I want us to be aware of how God views himself or how the Bible presents how God looks at himself. Exodus 9, verse 16. God talking to Pharaoh here. And he says this, And in very deed, for this cause I have raised thee up, 
For to show in thee my power, that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. What was God's whole purpose for creating Pharaoh? So that he could prove that he was more powerful than Pharaoh. It was for God's own namesake, right? It was for God's glory. Psalm 25, verse 11. For thy namesake, O Yahweh, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. Why are we forgiven? <coughs> for God's name's sake. Okay, that's going to be a common theme through these verses. Psalm 72, verse 19. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am Yahweh, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7. As God is... Um, uh, revealing to Israel his plans to regather them from their captivity. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. God acts to redeem his people for his own glory. Um, uh, this is a huge point of emphasis throughout the book of, of Isaiah. I've just picked verses out here, and some of these are very familiar to you. Isaiah 48, verse 11. For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted, and I will not give my glory unto another? Ezekiel 20, verse 9. But I wrought, I did, right? I acted for my namesake, that it should not be polluted before the heathen among whom they were, in whose sight I made myself known unto them, bringing them forth out of the land of Egypt. It, uh, last, uh, last of the ones in this section, Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord Yahweh, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen whither ye went. Um, and, and then I mentioned here the most obvious example in Scripture, although examples could be multiplied. Again, uh, these I've just picked and chosen highlighted verses. We could go on and on with verses to the same, same effect. The most obvious example in scripture, though examples could be multiplied, of a person attempting to hold God to a higher standard than his own nature is that of Job. So let me explain the point of all this. When we do apologetics, and we are engaged in the task of rational defense of Christianity, rational defense has to have a standard, right? I mean, that's the, the whole idea of arguing. You ever been in an argument and someone, someone says something and it's just dumb, right? Uh, my, my dad works in the auto industry and uh, he, gets really, he, he gets really irritated, you know, you have brainstorming sessions and everyone's ideas are supposed <coughs> to be good and my dad says, some, some people just have really stupid ideas. Um, but anyway, you know, you, so you're in an argument with someone and they say something and it's, and it's illogical and you say, no, wait, that doesn't work and they say, you know, who says? Right? And, and, and the, 
the challenge there now is for you to justify your standard that you're holding them to. And, and what you find is that's actually a very challenging thing to do. How do you justify logic? When we do a rational defense of Christianity, we're, we have to hold something up as a standard of rationality. Okay? Now, for the unbeliever, what does the unbeliever want that standard to be? The unbeliever wants everything to be judged by what? Himself. Okay? And we'll, we'll break it down a little bit more. But ultimately, the unbeliever does not want to accept anything that, for instance, he doesn't think is rational. Make sense? That, that for the unbeliever, God has to bow the knee to his rationality or else he's not going to accept him. Do you see the, the idea of presuppositions right here? And that, here's, here's the question. Can I argue for the existence of God on that worldview? I can't, right? Because even if I prove God in a way that he accepts, the God that I proved isn't the God of the Bible anymore, right? My God does not bow the knee to man's rationality. So, um, what we, what, the reason we've gone through these scripture texts is that I want us to see over and over again what God esteems highest what God holds as the ultimate standard what that justifies itself is God's own nature and character. Right? God is not to be held to any standard higher than or outside of himself. God is ultimate. Now that's going to affect how we defend God. Because I can't let go to the unbeliever and set up some standard outside God that the unbeliever and I both agree to, we're going to hold God to, and if he passes the test, well, then maybe God's acceptable. God is ultimate. Um, and so I, 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 mentioned, you know, I mentioned the case of Job here, I say in the middle of that paragraph. At one point, if you're familiar with the book of Job, at the beginning of the book of Job, Job is just a model of having handled the, the, these incredible uh, difficulties in his life. Difficulties is an understatement. But Job is a model of, of handling these difficulties in a, in a truly Christian way. Okay, it's a little anachronistic to call Job Christian, right? But in a truly Christian way. Um, in, in, the, in the inspired writer says about Job that in all this he did not sin with his mouth. But as you go through the book of Job, um, quite frankly, I think he gets a little tired of his friends. <laughs> you know, can you, imagine, can you imagine being Job? You've lost all of your belongings. Um, I, I was listening to a sermon or something the other day, and, and you, know, you know how bad it was for Job? God took everything except his wife. <laughs> that's how bad it was for Job. Uh, and, 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 and that's talking about his wife, not mine. That, you know, my wife is mine. That would be a very good thing. But, but Job's wife is not the one you want to be left with, right? Um, and then his friends come, and what, what do his friends say? Job, all this has happened, why? Because, because you're a sinner. And, and, and it seems, as the book goes on, Job has heard that just too many times, right? And, and, and in essence... As the book of Job continues, Job says, I demand an audience with God. 
God, you've treated me unfairly. I demand an audience. I demand my day in court. Does does Job get his day in court? He does, but it doesn't go the way Job thought it would. That, That... uh, that Job gets called in and instead of Job asking the questions, who asks the questions? God. And he asks questions like, Job, where were you when I created the world? And it's at the end of all of those questions, uh, I say here, Job actually asked for a hearing with God, a chance to plead his case. However, after God's remarkable display of power and wisdom, showing very clearly a creator-creature distinction, Job is left speechless. Look at the text again. Then Job answered Yahweh and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. That is a crucial passage. Uh, regarding the idea of holding God to some other standard. Job thought that, you know, this just isn't fair. God, there is a standard of fairness that you're violating, right? You see how that's a standard outside God that Job wanted to hold God to. And, And coming face to face with God, Job realizes that that's a foolish thing to do. Um... I say here, the obvious unifying theme of these passages is that God is without peer in the universe. Nothing can be placed on an equal level with God. And it is certain, therefore, that nothing can be placed on a higher level than God. Um, I would add one final passage. Note also in this regard Paul's conclusion to the debate between, uh, to the debate between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. You may be familiar with this passage. If you're not, just turn to Romans 9 quickly. I'm not going to camp here, and I'm not, not going to spend any time uh, talking about the subject that Paul's talking to, but I want, or talking about, but I want you to see Paul's answer. Um, the book of Romans, um, almost certainly my favorite book of the Bible. Uh, it's Paul laying out what the gospel is. It is, it is Paul's systematic theology. Uh, but shows that systematic theology rightly understood is fuel for worship. Um, <clears throat> and, and so the book begins by proving that we are all guilty, right? The first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans show that we're all guilty. Uh, but midway through chapter 3, probably my favorite passage, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed. And it's a righteousness that comes by faith in Christ and, and it is a righteousness that allows God to be just and the justifier. A rich passage. Okay, my favorite passage in all the Bible. And, and, and Paul begins to unpack all that that means. What, is it, what does it mean for us to be justified by faith in Christ? Uh, how does that, does that mean that we can sin? And Paul answers that. And Paul, you know, what does that mean the law is evil? Paul answers that. And now here's the next accusation. Well, Paul... Um, this God that you're telling us about, he, he was Israel's God. And it sure looks like he turned his back on them. Why should we trust him? That's the accusation. And so Paul's going to go about answering that. Um, and that's what, he, that's what he picks up on in, in, in Romans 9. Look at verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. 
I had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of, of sons. Theirs the divine glory. And he, he lists a number of the other benefits. Skip down to verse 6. It is not as though the God's word <coughs> failed. Right? That's the accusation. For not all who are descended from Israel are of Israel. Okay, now he's going to start explaining why, how it is that, that he can say God hasn't failed. And what he's going to say is God didn't intend to save all of those. Now that's a hard thing, right? But look at his language there. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Right? There, there, were, there was another child of Abraham, Ishmael, but he was not chosen. Uh, verse 8, in other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of promise. Uh, look at verse 10, not only that, this one gets stronger, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now that doesn't sound fair, right? Here are two children in the womb, and God chooses one and rejects the other. Uh, look at uh, verse 14. So here's, I mean, that's, here's the question you just asked. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then he tells the story of Pharaoh. We just looked at that, right? That it seems not fair that God raised up Pharaoh for the sheer purpose of displaying his own glory. Um, look at verse 19. This is the, the point I wanted to get to. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? Right? That's the question you've got. I mean, when, when you read this passage, that's the question you have. You know, Pharaoh was born, and his entire purpose of existing on this earth was to be overthrown by God as a display of God's power. That doesn't seem right. How in the world could God hold him responsible for those decisions that that was God's plan? Right? That's the accusation. And why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? Look at Paul's answer. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? They, they, it, this is one of those where I really love the King James. Nay, but who art thou, O man? Right? <laughs> now, my point, I don't want to talk uh, election, predestination. I want to get into that discussion tonight. But I do want you to see that, that what Paul says at the end of this passage is there's some, some things that God does that you don't have a right to question. God is his own standard. Um, and that's going to affect then how we present God to the unbeliever. I cannot package God in a way that the unbeliever will accept on his own unbelieving presuppositions which is why the evidentialist approach, I think, compromises Christianity at a very crucial point. Again, don't get me wrong, I think there are some good, you know, when you, with Josh McDowell or, or whatever, and they, they present the evidences. 
I think the evidences are good, and I think those men are well-intentioned, and that, and that people have come to Christ because of evidences like that, right? But remember we talked about last week, it's possible uh, that to have very bad arguments that are still persuasive, that apologetics is something other than persuasion. This, that's why I started with that idea, because we're going to look at some arguments that you're going to say, you know what, these are really effective arguments. When I go to my unbelieving coworkers and I, and I give this argument, they find that really compelling, and, and I'm going to say, okay, that's good. Let's try and find a way to formulate that argument that's consistent with the character of God instead of compromising the character of God. Right? Any questions so far? Does, that, does this make sense to this point? Right. So wouldn't the best approach be a mix of uh, evidentiary and suppositional? We'll, we'll talk about it. Evidences have a place in a presuppositional apologetic. Um, but we're going, we can throw evidences to the unbeliever. When he's consistent with his own worldview, he'll reject them. He's never really consistent with his own worldview because of what we're going to see here. If he were really consistent with his own worldview, he couldn't get by day by day. He's stealing from the Christian worldview all the time. Just, just so, I mean, so that he knows where he left his car in the Walmart parking lot. He's borrowing from my worldview. Because in an atheist worldview that's, world by, that's ruled by chance, how does he know that his car is still left in the parking lot? You know, how does he know that when he walks into, you ever have a dream, you walk into a building, you walk back out and see your points out there for some reason, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> I, I've, I've had dreams like that, you know. I walk into my old school building and I open the door to my old classroom and suddenly there's a dolphin in there. What in the world is going on? That's really consistent with an unbelieving worldview. I don't know why my dreams are unbelieving worldview. Um, but the Christian has a basis to get through everyday life in terms of knowing wh why do I know that you know when I oh, yesterday or you know just before I came here I squeezed the tube of toothpaste and what happened toothpaste came out right you know this is I, sometimes that you're like what what deep thing is he going for <laughs> I'm going real easy on this <laughs> and, and tonight before I go to bed I'm gonna squeeze the tube of the toothpaste and what's gonna happen Toothpaste is going to come up. And why am I confident saying that? Because I serve a God who doesn't play tricks on us. Right? He's, he has created a universe that has certain laws, certain regularities that I can count on. In an unbelieving universe, I don't have a, a rational basis for believing that the future is like the past. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. But so... I can, I can give him evidences, and he may accept him. When he does, he's being inconsistent with his own worldview. Okay? The, the reality is, most of the time when we do evangelism, um, we're probably going to be fine doing something like that, right? Because, um, <coughs> you know, I, I, I would, and we'll talk about this at, at, toward the end of the class when we talk about how to put this into practice practically. But when the unbeliever comes up to you and says, what must I do to be saved? You don't say, well, oh, hold on, let's talk presuppositions first. <laughs> you just, you, you give them the gospel at that point, right? And, and if the unbeliever says, um, you know, I, Christianity sounds great, but I'm, I've been taught evolution all my life. 
how, how do you handle some of these evolutionary problems from a Christian perspective? I can give him evidence because he's already asked, how do I hand it, handle it on a Christian perspective, right? But if he's sticking to his unbelieving worldview, giving him evidence isn't going to help. What I need to do is go in and cut the foundation up from his unbelieving worldview. And so a lot of what I'm going to be doing is, is trying to read the unbeliever as, as to what is he thinking? What is he asking for when he asks for evidence? Is he asking for evidence that's going to be acceptable on his worldview? Well, then I'm just going to attack his worldview. But if he's asking how on my worldview I account for something, I'm happy to give him that evidence. Good question. All right, rivals to God's ultimacy. So we've, we've seen from Scripture, God doesn't allow rivals. Right? God does not allow anything to be uh, set up outside him by which he can be judged. But unbelievers do this all the time. In fact, sometimes, sometimes <coughs> believers do that. Right? We saw the example of Job. Sometimes we go to God and we have a standard. You know, God, you haven't treated me right. Uh, and that's an example of setting up something outside of God and judging God by it. Uh, C.S. Lewis. Um, has a, a book, a collection of essays, uh, if anyone heard of this, called God and the Doc. And, and Doc there, is, he's talking about in a legal courtroom setting that God is on trial. And, and he, said, he said, you know, there, there was a day in human history, whether, whether you were pagan or whether you were Christian, that, that the picture was always that God was the judge and man was in the dock. But now, for people, the situation is reversed. Man is the judge and God is in the dock. And he says, that's always a problem. That's always a problem. That's right. All right, so what are the sorts of things that people look to to judge God? I say, there has been no shortage of proposed challenges to the radical ultimacy of God. Sadly, many of these claims have been endorsed not only by unbelievers, but by believers as well. So you will read, and, and um, if, if you do some reading in the history of apologetics, you will read guys who say, there's, there's one very well-known apologist from the late 1700s, early 1800s, wrote what was the standard textbook on apologetics back in the day, and he said, if anything in scripture runs counter to logic, we should throw out scripture. Okay. Now, what, he, what is he trying to do when he says something like that? Have the favor of men. He, he's trying... He, uh, uh, let's put the best spin on it we possibly can. What he's trying to say is um, Christianity is perfectly logical. Right? You unbelievers, you think you have logic on our side, well, test Christianity and you'll find that it's, it's perfectly logical. But, but the way he's expressed it has made logic the ultimate standard and not scripture. Right? Uh, so unbelievers do this, but believers as well. I say here, a survey of the three most common challenges to God's absolute ultimacy should illustrate the principle and give us the structure we need to evaluate similar accusations. Um, we need to have, basically, we're, I'm going to throw these out here as kind of paradigm cases. These are... Um, you know, when you were in math class growing up and the teacher did a couple of problems up on the board and then you had to use those as models, right, to do the rest of your homework. What we're, what we're going to look at here are just some paradigm cases of things that we might use to judge God. There could be others, 
Okay, but this will give you a taste for how these things are structured so we know how to look for them. By far, I say, the most commonly advanced rival to God's ultimacy is rationality. Right? We've already talked about this a little bit. The nature of apologetics obviously involves reasoned debate. Both unbelievers and believers are attempting to demonstrate that their respective positions are logical, reasonable, and rational. Right? That's what we're doing in apologetics. We've already said that apologetics stops when the unbeliever stops wanting to be rational. Right? We can continue the work of evangelism, but when the unbeliever says, you know what, you've got all the reasons, I just hate your God. Well, I can't give him more reasons at that point. He's, I would applaud his honesty then. Um, but when we're doing apologetics, we're arguing about rationality. So, so this, is, this is a danger really here for both the, the apologist and for the unbeliever to set up a standard outside of God of rationality. Let's talk about what we need to do. However, there ought to be a substantial difference to the rationality advocated by the believer and that advocated by the unbeliever. For the unbeliever, rationality is inviolable. Rationality is the unquestionable ultimate. His undying and unalterable assumption is that anything that contradicts reason, and, and you could add there his own reason, anything that contradicts his own reason is, by the very nature of the case, not possible. An example of an atheistic argument from rationality is the paradox of the stone. Okay? You, you all are familiar with this. Right? Can God create a stone too big for him to carry? And, and the standard Christian answer to that is, that's a stupid question, stop annoying me, kid. You know, kick him off the side. <laughs> and and there's, there's, there's something true to that kind of answer. But really what that question is doing is this. Um, it's trying to show that omnipotence is a logically self-contradictory um, property. That it, does, that it doesn't make any sense. So, you say an omnipotent being is capable of doing anything. Well, is he capable of creating a rock that's so big that an omnipotent being couldn't pick it up? And, and you see what they're trying to show is that omnipotence is self-refuting, that it's self-contradictory, that it doesn't fit logic. That's the point of... It's a more serious question than we give it credit for, right? Because it's showing that omnipotence doesn't fit our understanding of logic. Okay? Uh, and and we'll, we can talk... I actually... Uh, another, another one of those uh, nerve confessions... When I was at Westminster, I wrote a 25-page paper on can God create a rock too big for him to carry. Um, so if, if any of you are interested in it, I can uh, email it to you. Um, it, it just, uh, I should have done this the, the first night. I didn't do it. If you have any questions that you think about, you know, afterward, you want to you get an answer, you want to email me something, uh, my email address, my email address is m. Patrick Riley, mpatrickriley at gmail.com. mpatrickriley, all one word, at gmail.com. Um, if any of you are Facebook people, if you go to www.facebook.com forward slash mpatrickriley, you'll go to my Facebook profile and you can add me as a friend and I'll accept you. <laughs> um, 
One of, one of the fun things about having been in Michigan and then at Bob Jones and then at Westminster and then in Arizona is I've accumulated about 600 Facebook friends because I keep going to you know different paid churches and I know almost all of my Facebook friends. Um, but, uh, th but that is a way if you, you come up with questions or if you say, hey, I'd be interested in reading your Paradox of the Stone paper or whatever, uh, I'd, I'd be happy to happy to help you out. All right, so, but do you see the principle of it? The unbeliever is saying, my understanding of logic, it, God must conform to it. All right, we, and again, we could multiply examples here. There are, there are elements of the Christian faith that transcend human logic. All right, what are some of the obvious ones? Trinity. The Trinity would probably be the biggest one. And that's, that's core, I mean, that, that really is one of the most distinctively Christian beliefs that if we're going to defend the Christian God, we are bound to defend a Trinitarian God. And that doesn't fit well with human logic. Um, we've, we've looked at one tonight. How is it that human responsibility and God's sovereignty fit together? And, and the answer is a very definite, I have no idea. I really don't. Right? I know that the Bible teaches both, and I better believe both. But I can't tell you how they fit together. For the unbeliever who looks at his mind as the measure of all things, that's good enough reason to kick God out. Okay. Second, second proposed rival to God's ultimacy is morality. Almost, uh, and, and by morality I mean, again, some, some standard of morality set up outside of God by which we're going to judge God. Almost all the challenges of this sort are variations on the problem of evil, and we're going to spend probably a couple weeks talking about the problem of evil. Okay, you're familiar with the, the, the general outline of it, right? If God is all good, he would not want evil to exist. If God is all powerful, he would be able to prevent all evil. There's evil. The conclusion has to be that an all good, all powerful God can't exist. Um, or at least that's, that's the supposition. That is, a, that is an impressive challenge. And, and, and quite frankly, the problem of evil, uh, I, I just finished listening, uh, do, do another uh, recommendation. If any of you are, are iPod people or you like listening to things on your computer, on iTunes, there is a, did I tell you about this last week? On iTunes, there's a section of iTunes called iTunes U, uh, just the letter U where uh, various uh, colleges post classes for free that you can listen to the audio on iTunes. One of the colleges that, that posts on there is Reformed Theological Seminary. John Frame, whom I mentioned last week, wrote the book Apologetics to the Glory of God that I recommended highly. His class, Christian Apologetics, is available on iTunes U. It's 25 lectures, it's free. Uh, and so if you want to go far more in depth than what I, get, I can get to here, uh, I would highly recommend you downloading those MP3s and listening to them. I just I actually just finished them up today as I was vacuuming InterCity's auditorium. Um, there, if, you, if you have the kind of job where you can listen to something, it's really a great thing to be able to, to work your way through. Um, but, but Frame said in one of his lectures, and, and I think this is true, and in terms of atheistic uh, arguments or, or, or just problems. More people have abandoned Christianity because of the problem of evil than probably for any other reason. And, it, and it's not, it, and the reality is it's not primarily 
the argument from the problem of evil that makes people abandon Christianity. It, it's what Frank calls, and I think he's right to call it this, the existential problem of evil. In other words, for most people, you haven't, you haven't talked to most people who sat down and articulated the problem of evil, but when they lost a spouse and grew bitter at God, that's the existential problem of evil. They couldn't articulate it, but boy, they feel it. Right? And how do we answer that? How do, we, how do we answer what seems to be the pointless suffering? You know, a child gets cancer. How do we answer that? That's a very real question. Now, but what we have to realize is, is at the outset, when the unbeliever asks that question, very often he is taking some outside standard of, of morality and saying God isn't moral. And... and and again, when someone is in the midst of pain, it's not the time for you to say, well, actually, you're, you know, you're challenging God by setting up something. But when the time comes that they want to discuss that, you have to recognize that what they're going to want to do is, is set up some other standard by which they're going to judge God. And we can't do that. Um, uh, skipping down, I say a final proposed rival to God's ultimacy is a sense of rightness or fitness. And I say, this is harder to articulate, and I'll explain why I, I add it, even though it's hard. These challenges to God's ultimacy are usually expressed in terms of personal opinion. It just doesn't seem that God should be this way, right? It doesn't seem to me that, you know, the kind of God that I would serve wouldn't send anybody to hell. Or the kind of God that I serve would be like this. He'd be more friendly. He'd be, you know, whatever. It should be obvious. <coughs> it probably shouldn't be. I, I should probably change. It's obvious to me because I wrote it. Um, that the challenges presented to God correspond to the aspects of man's being. Mind, will, and emotions. Or mind, will, and affections, right? The, the mind is when we set up a rational standard that we're going to judge God by. Uh, the will is when we set up a moral standard that we're going to judge God by. And, and the affections or the emotions are when we say there's... It just doesn't feel right. God, God feels the wrong way. Yeah, that would be great. Getting a little worse. Ah, that was terrible. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> I, could, I could play for the Redskins. <laughs> yeah. uh, even the Lions can beat them. <laughs> the joy of being a Lions fan. I, I, you know, being a Lions fan, lifelong fan of historically one of the worst teams that has ever walked the planet, right? And then I moved to Arizona, home of the other worst <laughs> team that has ever walked the planet. And they go to the Super Bowl! You know, what's up with that? Anyway. Is that proof that there's a God? <laughs> <laughs> Something. I, I, I don't know that I want to interpret no, that providence. That is your theology. <laughs> that would be evidentiary, right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's an evidence of something. I say here, these three challenges often overlap each other, right? And, and the reality is when the unbeliever doesn't like God, he's willing to appeal to any standard outside God that would allow him to escape, in his mind, his responsibility to God. And I say here, most of the affectional object objections, that third category, the it doesn't feel right, are based on perceived intellectual or moral deficiencies. 
right? So when the unbeliever says, I just couldn't love a God who sends people to hell, really it's, it's kind of an emotional objection to God based on a moral objection to God, which is also based on an intellectual objection to God. They, they, they run together. You will find, um, sometimes, especially when you're dealing with people who are not skilled in argument, okay? In other words, they're not rational people. They're not um, trained philosophers, right? Most of the people you debate, most of the people you present the gospel to aren't, aren't people who took, you know, several years of philosophy in college. What you'll find, and, and this is the most frustrating thing in the world, that you have to be patient. They'll bring up one objection to Christianity, and just as you start to answer that one, what do they do? They bring up a totally different one, right? Now, why do they keep switching from one to the other and not giving you a chance to answer? Because they don't want an answer. They hate God. Okay, ultimately, the unbeliever's objection to God is rooted in the fact that he hates God. This is what Scripture teaches us, right? Um, uh, just, uh, you know, I think we get there. So I'm not... Uh, um, let's, let's skip here. Um, I want you to skip to page 14. The nature of the unbeliever. Uh, bottom third of the page. Nature of the unbeliever. So this is, this is a good, good point to bring this up. Um, I say here, uh, Adam was directly created in the image of God. And while that image has been marred by the fall, it has not been eradicated. Um, this truth has enormous implications for our approach to apologetics. That the unbeliever is in God's image allows us to make some basic assumptions about his nature. He is capable of rational thought, right? So here, I, I keep saying, the unbeliever on his own worldview has no basis for rationality. But... Because of who the unbeliever is, he is an image-bearer of God. He is capable of rational thought. His worldview doesn't justify it. My worldview does. I can explain on my worldview why the unbeliever is rational. Right? I can also explain on why my worldview why the unbeliever is irrational. The unbeliever on his own worldview has no explanation for any of it. But when I go to him, I know that he's an image-bearer of God, which means... I, have, I know I can have conversation with him, right? Um, he thinks he, he, he's capable of rational thought. He recognizes the value of morality. He sees beauty and ugliness. Um, furthermore, he thinks that rationality, morality, and aesthetics ought to be some way. Okay, let me explain what I mean by that sentence. I told Alicia this week, I've decided on the title of my first book. It's going to be called Ought. I think you can base your entire apologetic on the word ought. Okay? Let me explain why I think that is. Um, <coughs> I worked UPS when I was at uh, Westminster. Worked uh, Christmas rush at UPS. Ah, uh, crazy. <coughs> and working Christmas rush, I, I had a boss there who was originally from England. Uh, cool British accent, everything. I've, I've, I've wondered for years where in the world an American can go that people are like, that's an awesome American accent. <laughs> I don't think that place exists. Um, but but uh, 
so this this uh, this British guy was my boss, and we started having conversations about about Christianity as as we're sorting all the boxes. And he said that he didn't believe that people were basically good, right? You'll, you'll hear a lot of unbelievers will say they believe people are, are pretty good. He said, he said, I don't think people are good. I think people are just barely evolved animals. They're terrible to each other. I said, okay, that's an interesting worldview. You know, that, that, that people aren't good. He, he said he didn't believe that any, any real moral values. I said, I said, you realize, given your worldview of evolution and that we're just animals, that on your worldview, you couldn't say, for instance, that Hitler was wrong. And, and, and he said, well, I guess, I guess you're right. I guess on my worldview, I can't say that Hitler is wrong. Uh, you know, he was like, he was, he, was willing to, he was willing to take that bullet. But we had a guy on our box line who was the laziest worker you've ever seen. Um, he was the king of the, you know, UPS, you go in and, and you work maybe four to six hours, you know, short shifts because it's really intense physical work. And this guy, th this guy was the king of like the half hour bathroom break. When you're only working four hours, a half hour bathroom break is pretty substantial. <laughs> And, and he'd come in, just chat with the other guys on the box line, you know, we're all sorting, and he's sitting there sipping his coffee, whatever. And my boss would get so angry at him. Why? Because you guys have Because he ought to be working. Why? On an un why on an unbelieving worldview should that guy work? And the answer is, there is no reason on an unbelieving worldview. On a Christian worldview, I can tell you why that guy ought to work. And I, and, and I pointed it out to him, right, that, that even though he claims to be a relativist, he's not. He's an image bearer of my God, and he knows better. He knows better. And, and you just watch the unbeliever long enough, and that'll come out, right? The unbeliever may say, oh, I think truth is totally relative. But you'll find him in situations where he doesn't believe that. He'll say, oh, I think morality is totally relative. And then someone steals his car. <laughs> right? And suddenly morality doesn't seem relative to him, him anymore. That justice suddenly seems like a really real concept. But that doesn't exist on an unbelieving worldview. That exists on mine. But the reality is, I go into the apologetic encounter knowing that the, the unbeliever believes that rationality exists. He believes in absolute truth. He believes in absolute uh, morality. He believes that, that certain things are beautiful and ugly and that we ought to consider them beautiful or ugly. That beauty is not, and I, will, I, I don't want to get into this discussion, but I will throw it out to you, in a Christian worldview, beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Right? What God thinks is true is true. What God thinks is moral is moral. And what God thinks is beautiful is beautiful. And we have an obligation to conform our mind to God's mind, our will to God's will, and our heart to what God loves and hates. Um, the unbeliever believes. It, it, you know, he, he, he likes certain bands, and he thinks other bands are just trash, and he can't understand why in the world anyone would like that, you know, that particular band. He's showing that his aesthetic judgment has an ought in it. Right? And any time you catch the unbeliever in an ought, you have a basis for going in and showing that his worldview doesn't account for it. Your worldview does. All right. Um, so I say, despite any protest to the contrary, 
And, and such protests are common because of the faddish adoption of postmodern thinking. So he, he protests, I don't believe in absolute truth. He does want to universalize his understanding, right? He, he believes that certain things are true always, all the time. Um, his morals, his artistic appreciation, he does not think truth is relative. He does not ultimately believe morality is relative. Uh, he thinks it is wrong for you to punch him in the nose. Uh, he does not think that a pile of refuse is repulsive just to him personally. He thinks it should be to you too as well. Further, he believes that his actions, beliefs, and attitudes are meaningful and that life is not simply a series of disconnected events. Right? He believes that when he gets a promotion, that's meaningful. Right? He believes that uh, when something significant happens in his life, when he has a birthday, we should celebrate with him. And an unbelieving worldview, if we're all just animals and matter in motion, my dog doesn't care if I forget his birthday. Right? But, but the significance uh, that we hold, the, the fact that he argues with you shows that he thinks there is truth. And, and that his opinion, you know, his opinion ought to be taken seriously. All of these things only make sense on my worldview. And that's what I want to keep pointing out to him. This is the basis of, of, of a presuppositional apologetic. I, it's not so much that I'm arguing, I'm showing him evidence that he'll accept on his worldview. I'm showing him over and over again that he's borrowing from mine. And that his worldview doesn't support himself. My worldview not only explains how I think things are, but I can explain why he thinks things are the way they are. All right, that's, that's a presuppositional apologetic. I say here, these characteristics of the unbeliever are ontological in nature. Uh, in, our, in our glossary, ontology refers to being. Ontology, metaphysics, same basic thing. When we talk about ontology, we're talking about what is, right? And so when we talk about the unbeliever believing in rationality, that's ont ontologically, the unbeliever is God's image bearer, right? That's what he is. He is an image bearer of God. And so I can make certain appeals to him based on what he is, regardless of what he professes. Um, the inescapability of the knowledge of God, okay? So here's the first thing we know about the unbeliever. He believes that rationality and morality exist, regardless of what he says about it. Second, by virtue of creation around him and the image of God within him, the unbeliever is overwhelmed with evidence for God's existence. In fact, <coughs> the biblical evidence points us to the conclusion that all people everywhere know that God is. This is what Romans 1 teaches us. In fact, turn there very quickly. We're, we're running out of time tonight, but look at Romans 1. This is a very, very important passage to us as apologists. Romans 1, verses 18 through 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's an, important, that's an important phrase right there. What is the unbeliever doing all the time? He is suppressing truth. He knows and he's holding it back. And, and why am I so confident that he's suppressing truth? Well, look at the next verse. 
since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, <coughs> God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Right? And so I go into the apologetic debate knowing that the unbeliever knows not only that a God exists, he knows the one true living God. He knows my God. And, and he is suppressing that truth. And a lot of what I'm doing in apologetics is, you know, he's, he's, he's holding it down, and I'm kind of slapping his hand away, and that truth keeps coming up, right? And that's a lot of what I'm doing in apologetics, is, is I'm bringing the word of God to bear on the unbeliever. The unbeliever's problem, you know, when he says, you know, I just don't know if God exists. We have, to, we have to deal with the unbelievers charitably, right? Um, it, is, it is appalling to be an arrogant apologist, um, to, to be an, uh, an uncouth, rude defender of the faith is, is really abominable. Um, so I'm not saying when the unbeliever says, I don't believe in God, that you should say, you're a flag, flaming liar. <laughs> <Can> <laughs> But the reality is, he doesn't need more evidence that God exists. He knows perfectly well that God exists. Now, you may be God's instrument in reminding him. Uh, but, but the unbeliever knows good and well that God exists. Uh, he, he can't escape it. And there's two primary av avenues that God's revelation comes to him that he finds inescapable. What, what is one avenue of revelation that, that he can't escape? nature, right? Um, and that's what Paul says there. God has made all these things, and the unbeliever looks at them, and he sees God. What, what is the other place that the unbeliever sees God that he can't escape? Himself, right? We just said, he is an image bearer. He is a finite picture of God. And so when he, looks, when he closes his eyes and he cuts himself off from all nature, and he says, I'm going to suppress that truth, He's right there reminding himself that God is. And he can't escape it. Alright? Um, and I'll uh, close here with this thought here. Look at the last paragraph in that, in that section. Van Til points out the error inherent in the idea of an unbiased seeker. Right? We'll, we'll talk about this sometime. That, uh, or you, you'll hear people say this. Uh, the unbeliever is just neutral. He's looking at the evidence he, he's not biased one way or the other. He's, he's, he's a seeker examining the truth claims of <coughs> all the different possibilities. You know, maybe God exists, maybe he doesn't. Ventil says this. It is not a virtue of a child to be seeking for its mother when the, its mother alone is daily caring for it. Right? If, if your child said, you know, Dad, I'm, I'm, I'm open to the option that you exist. <laughs> You know, maybe, maybe not. It's an interesting question. I'm willing to consider it. None of you would say, you know, that's very big of you, son. That is a very virtuous position for you to be open-minded that way. You'd say, you stupid kid. You know, I, I put the food on your table. And, and, and it is no virtue for the unbeliever who knows God walking around in God's universe to consider himself open-minded on that question. He is, in being open-minded, dishonoring 
his creator and his sustainer. Right? Any questions? Any questions as we wrap up tonight? A lot of material. Um, and, and I hope it helps. Again, if you have any further questions, feel free to email me and I will get back to you as quickly as I can. <coughs> Thank you all for coming. <coughs>